0: I'm Maya Shankar, host of A Slight Change of Plans, which Apple chose as the best show of the
1: year. In our new season, we'll explore how the science of change can help us better navigate change in our own lives. And we'll hear stories from people like Ruby Bridges, who at age six became one of the first students to desegregate an all white elementary school, and Christy Warren, a firefighter who saved others for decades before finally seeking out help for herself. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. From Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. I am so lucky to speak with today's guest, Cody Keenan, who was President Obama's chief speechwriter for many, many years and was his post-presidential collaborator. The book we are going to talk about today is called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. This takes us back to a period in 2015 that started with the massacre that happened in the Charleston church. And in those next 10 days, the Marriage Equality Act would be passed, the Affordable Health Care Act would be passed. And... President Obama would sing Amazing Grace at the memorial for the victims of this massacre. It was an extraordinary time, and this is such an extraordinary story because it's told through Cody's perspective as a speechwriter in this place called the Speech Cave in the White House where he would sit and sweat and procrastinate and drink bourbon and wait till the very last minute possible to kind of try to summon up the muse, the writing gods, to help him try and channel the voice of the first black president. I mean, if there isn't pressure there, I don't know what pressure looks like. Obama would tell Cody to go listen to jazz, to loosen up. And this book is all about their writing collaboration, It's about how Obama would push Cody to be better, to ask more of himself and to ask more of Americans. I was lucky enough to meet Cody about two years ago. I read this proposal when it was out to publishers and instantly knew that I wanted to be involved with publishing this. As you guys can hear, I have an Australian accent, so I am a dual citizen, an Australian citizen and an American citizen. And this book helped me understand America more. It helped me understand that America is an experiment in and of itself, and that it's always evolving and changing. And that I, as a citizen, have an obligation to help make it the place and the country I want to live in. And it has been one of the biggest honours and career highlights um, to date. I hope you find some inspiration in this book and in our conversation with Cody Keenan. Thank you for listening. The moment we've been waiting for, and I was just told by Cody Keenan that no questions are off limits. Open book. Okay, first we have to explain why we are here and how we're so lucky to have gotten to know each other. We're here to celebrate your incredible book, Grace, President Obama, and the 10 days in the battle for America. Welcome, Cody, to Lit Up.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you.
1: Okay, so you were Obama's chief speechwriter and collaborator for many years after that. But before we get into that, we've kind of set the scene. My big question that I've been meaning to ask you is, did the president ever ask you to write love poetry for Michelle?
2: Oh my God, no. No, no, that that's an amazing question that I've never even even thought about, let alone been asked. He is perfectly capable of talking about his wife. I can actually tell this story now. Just last week, I was at the White House for the portrait unveiling for both of them. And I saw, I'm no longer his chief speechwriter, but I saw the draft of his remarks for it. And I saw his edits to it. And everybody went nuts when he added in that Michelle is fine. He called her fine in his remarks. In the White House, as the President of the United States... Saying my wife is fine. Barack Obama added that. Nobody else wrote that for him.
1: Punched it up. Did you punch it up in any way? Or is it off limits now that you're not an official collaborator? No, it's not off
2: limits. You know, even when I was chief speechwriter, he would ask on something that's like truly important. He'd say, you know, let's just get everybody's kind of gut check on this. These days, I'll take a look at anything that he thinks is important. But when it comes to Michelle, I, I let the man say what he wants.
1: Okay, okay. Well, some other hard-hitting questions will be coming your way in this chat. I've mentioned that you were the president's speechwriter, and we'll we're gonna jump into to your book soon. But I'd love to rewind and ask how you got there.
2: There's there's no one path to becoming a speechwriter, which is what makes it so interesting and exciting. You know, a lot of the speechwriters in the Obama White House came from all sorts of different backgrounds. And for me, after I graduated from college at Northwestern University, I moved to Washington. You know, cocky 22-year-old, thinking I went to a good school. I've seen every episode of The West Wing. Like, how hard can it be to find a job? It turns out it's actually really difficult because everybody else in Washington has done those things. So I, I took a an internship in the mailroom of Senator Ted Kennedy, who was the youngest Kennedy brother, the last remaining Kennedy brother. And it ended up being my best education. I learned, you know, not only about... How to get complicated legislation through Congress, but also I was opening letters in the mailroom and, and reading about people's lives. And you realize what actually matters in politics and public service and why it's so important to get it right. I had a mentor in Kennedy's office, a woman named Stephanie Cutter. She also mentored John Favreau on the Kerry campaign in 2004. Uh, John was the president's first chief speechwriter. And she introduced the both of us early in 2007, right after President Obama had announced his candidacy. And John and I connected over the phone, really liked each other. He hired me as his intern in 2007. And I just kind of hung on for 14 years. I was too stubborn to quit. And, um, you know, John and I, to this day, remain fantastic friends. We're doing a stop together on the book tour in Los Angeles. So the quick answer to your question, how do you become a chief speech of at the White House? Work hard, don't be an asshole. But there's also no small amount of privilege to it too. You know, politics is still made for white men and and white women to succeed. Um, I had parents who could who could put me through college and help me when I was an intern. So I'll never forget that I was just lucky in that way to have that in a way that a lot of people aren't. But uh, you know, you also work sixteen hour days for a long time and do your best and try to impress people and stay in touch with people. And uh, you know, eventually that hard work pays off if if you're lucky enough to. Work as part of a good team and I got to be part of two great teams in the Kennedy office and the Obama office
1: So what was that first day at the White House like
2: yeah? Well, the first thing I did on my first day of work, which was January 21st 2009 I didn't go to work on inauguration day. I went to work the next day I took a picture of myself in my suit and tie and sent it to my mom Because I knew it'd make her cry and then you go to the White House and you, th- you worry that there's been some mistake, right? You're going to flash your badge at the Secret Service window and they're going to be like, yeah, you're not on the list. But somehow they let you in. You know, the gate opens. You get to go inside and you're like, oh, my God. You have to find your office. You have to do a lengthy check-in procedure. You have to get a security briefing. You have to get an ethics briefing. For me, I got to go into the Oval Office on day two to see the president. And this was the first time I'd ever met Barack Obama. I'd been on the campaign for almost two years, but he was never in Chicago. He was just always out campaigning. He came in maybe three times, and he'd speak to the entire staff and then go to a meeting with his top aides. So I get a call at my desk, and I'm across the driveway from the West Wing in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and it's the president's assistant, Katie, and she says, hey, can you come on over? And I'm like, to where, the Oval Office? She's like, yeah, the president wants to see it. I was like, of the United States? Um. So I just kind of race over there and there are different color badges and different hierarchies for who's allowed to go where. I walk into the Oval Office and like my mouth has never gone drier faster. The light is brighter somehow. You feel like you're on live television, even though you're not. And it's just the president sitting behind his desk. It's just Barack Obama hanging out. And he just, the first words out of his mouth to me were, hey brother. I'm like, I've never met this guy. And it turns out all he wanted, I'd written a draft speech the night before that he got in his briefing book. And he said, look, man, I saw your name on the top of this speech. And I realized I've never met you before. So I just wanted to meet you. And we spent like five minutes talking about we're both from Chicago. And, you know, I'm a Cubs fan. He's a White Sox fan. We talked about family. We Like, it, it was crazy. And then when I left, I was just like, what on earth?
1: So in a way, that was a baptism of fire, you know, meeting the president's second day Now I do want to jump to this book because so much of what everything else that we'll talk about will be relevant because even though it really zeroes in on these 10 remarkable days in 2015, it's really about America. It's about Cody. When this book starts, what is this inciting incident that, you know, really rocked America?
2: Yeah. Obvi- I mean, obviously, we weren't sitting around thinking this is day one of 10. You know, we have no. no idea what's coming. What what ends up being day one of the 10 days is June 17th, 2015. And it was just, it was a relatively normal day at the White House. You know, the president called to congratulate the NBA champs. The president installed the new attorney general. There was a barbecue for members of Congress in the South Lawn. It's a pretty typical day. Tons and tons of meetings. And I'm at home with my wife that night and news starts trickling in, usually first over Twitter, then over email, then on cable television of a mass shooting. And you just kind of say, oh no, like you get that feeling and pity your stomach, like how bad is this one going to be? And it, it took a long time, you know, it took almost a day to get all the true details, but you learn pretty quickly it's a black church with all black victims during a study group and the killer is a white man. As it comes out the next day, he's a white supremacist who's steeped in this stuff online. He's self-radicalized online. He's he's he he wrote a manifesto saying he wanted to create or start a race war. So there's a real chance that things can get bad in America out of something like this. So you just kind of have that nervous feeling, in the pit of your stomach. Part of my job is I have to start writing something for the president to say right away. We usually did that after mass shootings, so to write a statement for the president of the United States. That's the first two days. In the background of this, what I had been focused on was the Supreme Court was going to rule on two important cases, um, marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act. And D.C. has a way of looking at these things myopically, which is like, is it a win or a loss for Republicans or Democrats? But, you know, millions of people were poised to lose their health care if this went wrong. Tens of millions of people were about to be told... You can't get married just like everyone else and be declared second-class citizens. So, and then you have this mass shooting and we have to decide in the White House whether or not the president's going to give a eulogy. He's asked to give a eulogy and at first he doesn't want to. But then the back half of the 10 days, kind of all this stuff swirls together at once.
1: Anyone reading this book will think back to where they were on these 10 days and marvel at the fact so much did happen in these 10 days. I remember I was working at Cosmo when this period happened and I was covering in the magazine the Affordable Care Act because it would affect so many young readers. Then to have, you know, marriage equality pass was such a celebratory, incredible moment for the country, but also, I think, for how it felt like it would trigger the rest of the world. I mean, other countries had already voted this forward, but... America felt like a very important um, catalyst for that. And I think the tone you strike in the book is so careful as well, because you're dealing with the joyful outcomes and such sadness. And something that you've reckoned with in the book is at being a white man speaking, trying to inhabit the voice of the first black president. Can you talk a little bit about That process, how you became more comfortable with it, and how probably that mirrored becoming more comfortable with him as a boss, but also as a real collaborator.
2: Yeah. I mean, this week was the biggest test of that. Uh, Probably the most important thing about being a speechwriter, beyond just being able to string a sentence together, is to have a, a real sense of empathy. You know, the, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to understand what a different audience might be going through. It's just really important because the president talks to, well, whoever you're writing for, it talks to all sorts of different audiences. There are limits to that moral imagination. There are limits to empathy, right? It, when it comes to race, and I, I, I write openly about this in the book because I think it's important, You know, I'm a relatively privileged white guy from the north side of Chicago who went to Northwestern University. I've never really wanted for much. And just a few miles away, you know, from where I was born and raised, there were awful projects that no longer exist because they were so bad. And there's terrible violence to this day and just lives that I don't know, right? So I, you know, the man I'm writing for, Barack Obama, I don't know what it's like to be asked for your ID just because you're walking around Columbia's campus. I don't know what it's like to be followed in a department store or what it's like for a clearly available taxi to pass me by. You know, these these are things that I've never had to deal with or worse, obviously. So when you're writing about race, when you're writing about orientation, when you're writing about class, you know, you do your best to push the boundaries of empathy. You know, I'd always had health insurance, right? I'd never known what it was like to go without it. At the time this book takes place, i just proposed to my wife. We'd been engaged for just a few weeks, and there was no way anyone was ever going to tell me we couldn't get married. And yet, there was an active question before the Supreme Court that they could have decided, no, you know, you can't get married if you're, if you're a certain type of American. It's a real challenge. You work really hard. You talk to people who aren't like you. You read widely. And I would always talk to the president before any speech that um, – felt like it was beyond my capacity to write, you know, something like the Charleston eulogy. I didn't I could write a good eulogy, I knew that, but to really delve into issues of race and the Confederate flag and guns, I needed some guidance from him. And he was always great about sitting down with us on the front end because he's a writer. He cares about his speeches, you know. He knows that words matter. So he would always make time for us when we needed it. And in a lot of ways we would lean on him to give us guidance. But I was always aware, as I put in the book, I never felt whiter than when I was writing for the first black president.
1: There's a particular passage in the book that I love. And it's when you make a joke that when the president says that he's like waiting for the muse to strike, you're like, what the hell, not this again. Can you share with us this special relationship Obama has with his own creative spirit? and how for you as his speech writer, it was a challenge.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, like I said, President Obama is a writer for all the good and ill that comes with it, you know, and, and as writers, there are plenty of times we're just sitting at the computer or whatever and, and just, I don't know what I want to say or I just don't want to write this. The scene you're talking about was in 2013. He has to go give a speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial 50 years to the day that Martin Luther King stood on those same steps and gave the Eye of a Dream speech.
1: No pressure, Cody, right? Yeah, it's just
2: <laughs> not fair. It's like, come on, do we have to do this? And he felt that too, you know, it's just, it, it, no, matter, no matter how hard you work or what you do, it's not going to be as good. Because the times have changed, the times are different. It's not, for, for all the miles we still have to travel, the, everything that was facing Dr. King and the black community in 1963 was a lot different. So I'm talking to him about the speech and he's like, yeah, you know, I haven't really thought about it yet. Why don't you just go write something up and give it to me? And if the muse hits, I'll work on it. And if it doesn't, we'll just go with what you do. And I was like, come on, man, That, that is not cool. I was 32 years old. You can't ask me to write what everyone is already looking at as the sequel to the Eye of the Dream speech. And he was like, look, the truth is I'd rather just be hanging out with my daughters or playing golf or drinking a martini. But the first thing I could think of was, this is, you know, two years after the whole birth certificate fiasco. I was like, and they say you're not an American. And he got a genuine laugh out of that. And he was like, just you just write it up and I promise I'll I'll look at it. So he just he called it the muse. You know, I don't have a name for it. There are times when you are inspired to write, and there are times when you're not. For me, it's usually when I'm angry about something. That's when I'm at my best about writing. It's not something I try to manufacture, but there are Unfortunately, in today's world, there's plenty of things worth making you angry.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, when the muse strikes for you, you've said it's fueled by anger. Can you describe the speech cave, this environment, this place that for you was where you did most of your work, but also how you wrestle with kind of those procrastination Demons.
2: The speech cave was this kind of complex of three offices under the Oval Office. You had to walk through one office to get to mine, and then you'd walk through mine to get to our national security speechwriter's office, which was locked and, and protected. It had low ceilings, no windows, just yellow light, and tons of wall space. So I, I decorated it with. Chicago sports memorabilia, political memorabilia, my grandfather's World War II medals, pictures of my wife, then my fiance. It was like a little clubhouse, sort of, you know, obviously a grown-up clubhouse, but it was where we had the speechwriter team meeting in the morning, and I could be in the Oval Office in about seven seconds, so it was a great office. It wasn't great for writing in, it was quiet, but it was depressing, and I always do my best writing when the world feels big. You know, when I'm outdoors or like in college I went to, you know, we had this great library with these enormous ceilings like a cathedral, spaces like that when I get to do my best writing. And I just didn't have that in the White House. So you just sort of hunker down, pop a vitamin D pill. Uh,
1: oh, that's a tip for everyone.
2: Well, the, the White House doctors gave it to me because I didn't get any sunlight. So they were like, you need these. And just get to work.
1: So much of these 10 days is an example of when – you had to dig deep. Like when you're running on empty as a human, as a partner, as a colleague and find the reserve, because there's also a higher calling, a higher mission to so much of what you were doing. When you did find yourself being like, I don't know if I have more in me, what what did you draw upon?
2: What's strange is that's actually when I was at my best. I think, hmm. when there was no time to think. You asked about procrastination earlier. I, I think the reason I procrastinated when I did was to intentionally or subconsciously shorten the amount of time I had until a deadline because that's how I'd get my best workout. We had an eight-person speech writing team, so I had other speeches to edit all the time every day, and I'd spend hours working on um, my team's speeches. So I'd be like, you know what? Instead of writing this eulogy, I'm going to edit a couple other speeches, but to to get back to your question on on where do you dig deep you don't have time to think you just it just comes out because you have no other option but you also lean on the people you love and i actually loved some of my colleagues you know and, and i know that sounds a little weird but we all we all grew up together on the obama campaign where we were together for 2 years working 16 hour days i mean it forges you into a family i lived with two of my colleagues and then make it three when my future wife moved in with us. I leaned on Kristen, my then fiance, a lot that week. You know, One of the reasons we're always so good together, and I assume all other good relationships are, is, is when somebody is just going breakneck on something, the other person knows when to step in and back them up. I had amazing colleagues too. I remember there, there was one there was one moment when I had four full cups of coffee on my desk because people just brought me coffee, which was really, really nice you know, it it makes you, it makes you tear up a little bit to think, God, I am just a terrible friend while you're writing this speech that you're freaking out about. Uh, and you make a mental note to to pay it back some other time.
1: So a sidetrack question, what happens when you leave the white house and life doesn't feel as, as dramatic? Like how do you summon that, I guess your version of a muse, you know, when that, the pressure's on. And I think we can all relate to those moments. You know, I'm never gonna equate working at Cosmo to being in the White House. <laughs> but I do miss that being on a deadline, everyone's there, you know, helping out, jumping in, editing each other's work, and you there is such a kick to that adrenalized moment together and the relief when it happens. And you feel like you've worked so hard. Even you're making
2: if- me realize that the White House in many ways was a gift and that it forced me to do my best work at times. I stayed with the president for four years after the White House. So we still had deadlines, which which was helpful. But since then, you're right, it's tough. You know, you have book deadlines, but come on, let's be honest. Every, you blow through every single deadline when you're writing a book. Sorry, DN, my editor. I mean, fortunately, like the White House still kind of lives in my head where it's like, I, I will hit this deadline.
1: You've mentioned Kristen, and she's a big part of the book in the ways that she obviously supports you. However, we have to mention that she has an incredible career herself. You met in the White House, and in fact, she was one of your fact checkers, making sure that everything you brought to the president was factually sound. But often, as you mention in the book, you know, her work starts as yours finishes. I mean, what an incredible collaboration you have together. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, the the speechwriter fact checker relationship is it's both antagonistic, but it's also and collaborative, because you're both working towards the same goal. I met her on her first day at the White House in twenty eleven and I was you know, just so that's it. You just know. I probably looked like an idiot like lightning had struck me when I first saw her. And, you know, we didn't start dating for eight months because you're colleagues suddenly, right? And you're working in the White House. That's not something you want to mess up. But her, one of her many tasks was to fact check our speeches. She was basically the president's fireproofer. She made her sure that he never said anything he shouldn't with anybody he shouldn't be with, at a place he shouldn't be. You know, she basically prevented countless alternate timelines where there was some sort of optics communications crisis. That's her job. And and part of that is fact-checking. So, you know, I'd kill myself on this draft to make it, you know, perfect perfect and beautiful as I could. And then it's kind of over to her to tear apart and be like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You can't say this. He said something different before. And they would just send us back our beautiful drafts. And, And I think any writer can empathize with this. Our beautiful drafts all marked up with a bunch of footnotes telling us why we're wrong, and you know our first reaction as a writer is like, "Damn you, you don't know what you're talking about. this was beautiful that's you know, but you start looking through and you're like, all right, she's right, she's right, she's right, she's right and so it was you know I, I always joke that she literally got paid to tell me I was wrong for six years, which is every spouse's dream, and she still does it for free, but it's always still you know to to my benefit. she is a genius. She made every speech I ever wrote better. And she made this book, Grace, better.
1: I know so many writers listen to this podcast as well as such close readers. But something I know that really struck me in the book, there's a a line that I want to read out loud. And it is to do with the connection between music and Obama's speeches and the way he writes, but also how it helped you write. And there's this great, you know, you say here, soon after he made me his chief speech writer, Obama offered some sound advice. Read James Baldwin when you're stuck. Listen to John Coltrane when you're not. Um, just tell us about this experience. And also, for the, for the writers of us, how can we use it in our own work?
2: What do you mean by read James Baldwin when you're, when you're stuck is you know, if you've read James Baldwin, it is just bracing moral clarity. It's like a hot knife through butter. This is right. That is wrong. It fires you up, you know, to write something true. And when you're not stuck, something like Coltrane, that's a little more free form, you know, kind of frees you up to take risks, to to riff, to, to do something interesting. Um, how do you apply that in your own work? You know, I think that's up to each individual person. I, I've always been a little bit embarrassed of my personal speech writing playlist in that it's very mainstream. You know, I I didn't have anything in the book that I could throw in where it's like, I liked such and such before it was cool. If, you know, this is like a, a, a layman's version of read Baldwin when you're stuck, listen to Coltrane when you're not. If I really needed to focus and couldn't handle someone else's words in my head while I was writing words on a page, I would listen to soundtracks. And I liked those big orchestral superhero soundtracks, The Dark Knight. The Social Network has an amazing soundtrack. If I could deal with, if I kind of knew what I was going to write and I could deal with, with words, Springsteen was my jam. I listened to Bruce this entire catalog 500 times over in the White House. But I'd also look for tone. If there was a tone I was trying to reach in a speech that I wasn't exactly feeling in the moment, for the State of the Union Address in 2015, we wanted it to be upbeat. You know, kind of be like, listen, we've been through six years of of crap here. And, and, you know, in America, it feels like we've been through 20 years of it, but we're turning the corner. Everything is, everything is actually trending upwards. Things are going good. So I had my wife, Kristen, give me a crash course in Taylor Swift. And I listened to 1989 while I was writing the State of the Union address just to like be a little more bubbly and upbeat. So, you know, music for me is more of a mood thing than anything else.
1: Mm. Well, I want to focus in now back on these 10 days and to try and explain how this book is both a memoir and a look at American history. It's such an unusual book and the way you've managed to have it be both and like what you're just talking about tone and how music helped you with that. I feel it's an unbelievable feat to be able to cover these very important Issues while bringing the levity, and my sense from reading it is that that was the type of environment within the White House. It was, like you said, this—it's—it's it's a family, and when you're going through, when you're having real hard conversations, fights with your family. There's often a lot of laughter if it's kind of underpinned by love and a common goal. You're nodding, he's everyone he's nodding and smiling. But to that end, we'll start with a time where as a group you really had to draw upon strength, and then I want to know about some of the the highs.
2: You know, the first thing that comes to mind actually is one of when one of our colleagues' fathers died, which I think is telling. Right, it, it's not some piece of legislation or something that happened to the president politically. It said one of our 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 friend's dad died, and we all rallied around each other. But politically, you know, I, there was no worse day in the White House than Newtown, December fourteenth, twenty twelve. We, you know, we would just won re-election a month earlier, and it's a Friday in the White House, and again, you know, news starts to trickle in of a mass shooting, and you just get this pit this feeling in the, in the pit of your stomach and we would get news faster than cable news would obviously at this time it was I think a late morning and Alyssa Mastermonico, who was deputy chief of staff came into the office that John Favreau and I shared and she shut the door and she said it's worse than cable news knows um, she she said there there are at least a dozen kindergartners dead and we're just like fuck. I mean everybody just starts crying because what else are you gonna do What other option is there? And it ended up being 20 children, five and six years old, and then six educators who were trying to protect them. And so you have to write a speech, you have to write a statement right away. It's a Friday, the president has to go say something about this. Um, So I, John was busy working on the second inaugural address, which was in a few weeks. So I, I banged out a statement real quick. John and I went up to the office, gave it to the president. The other important thing about this day is is Anita Decker Breckenridge, who was President Obama's personal assistant at the time, she did something that she had never done before and never did again. She called the First Lady and asked her to come to the Oval Office. She said, I think you need to come down here. And uh, I still get a little choked up about it. The uh, the President and the First Lady were in the Oval Office for a while alone together. And then John and I were the first people to go in there after that and showed him um, draft statement and he just he crossed out one paragraph and handed it back and he said it's too raw i wouldn't be able to get through that it was a paragraph about um him him you know imagining himself as one of the parents there you know caught behind police tape not knowing whether your child was alive or dead and even when he delivered this statement he you know he couldn't get through it he stopped and cried for i think 12 seconds or something like that um to collect himself. And for a long time, it was, the, it was the second most viewed YouTube on the White House website right behind the night he announced that we'd killed Bin Laden. And I think that was just because he, he showed emotion that everyone else was feeling. You know, you can't manufacture that. You don't write into a speech, sir, cry here. Because we were all crying, you know? And I don't think it matters whether you had kids or not. I, I didn't have kids at the time, I do now, but I'm sure people with children were feeling it in a much more profound way. The rest of us were just feeling this horror as humans. We were best friends and family and that's what got us all through.
1: Okay, so now we're gonna switch tone too because a huge part of this book is its call to action to young people, to everyone, to be politically engaged and to care and to hope and that we can make the difference. So share that great day in the White House. It doesn't have to be from those 10 days, although it can be. On reflection, what's something that's still inspiring you about that time?
2: You know... One of the things about the book is, is, you kind of alluded to this before, when I was writing it and I talked to friends about what I was doing and they were like, oh my God, dude, I remember all of those things, but I don't remember them all happening in the same 10 days. That's a coincidence that they all happen in the same 10 days. It's not because of anything Barack Obama did. It, you've got Obamacare, which is the closest any president's ever come to making sure that the government guarantees some form of health insurance to every single American. But that was a result of 100 years, ever since Teddy Roosevelt first called for it, of people pushing for it. You had marriage equality at the Supreme Court. That was a result of 50 years of advocates pushing. Obviously, you know we are still not just 60 years into a civil rights movement, but 400 years into it. And this kind of gun safety movement has has grown out of you know the massacres of the Obama years. It's the progressive triumphs in the book are because people marched and organized and decided to care about something bigger than themselves. And that's why we all went to work for Barack Obama. This is the part where more cynical people start rolling their eyes. But we didn't just hook ourselves to him because we thought he would take us somewhere. Revisionist history is like this, this campaign was lightning in a bottle, You know, it was magic. It was a grind. You know, and and then even that next spring it was a grind. We did it because we wanted to make a difference, because we believed that he would be the one person in that election that would help us make that difference, or that we could help him make that difference. And so many of us left Washington after Obama. You know, we we weren't part of the revolving door kind of political infrastructure down there. We a lot of people just left. That doesn't mean we, we've left politics. People are doing different things. All over the place, on the state level, on the national level, we were just very lucky that these 10 days, it it felt more alive than it did at most other points in the White House. That in real time, the country was changing. You know, we already knew the country was changing, but it was almost like America was catching up to what we knew it could be. But we were also acutely aware that not everybody shares that feeling. That there would eventually be a backlash to that progress.
1: Well, that's definitely what we're experiencing now and I don't want to delve into that I feel like we need to have you back on Lit Up after your kind of crazy book tour to help us um in the way that you help your students now that you're a teacher at Northwestern again and I know part of why you wanted to write this book is being inspired by young people again but to help us process the where are we now What can we do to close out any words of wisdom from Cody Keenan?
2: Yeah, the answer to that question you just asked is where are we now is always fluid. That's the story of America. I mean, that's that's part of why these 10 days are such an incredible microcosm for American history. Because our history is the story of progress and backlash to that progress. And we are living through a period of backlash right now. But you really can, if you dive in and keep at it, make a difference. You know, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision earlier this summer was just, gut punch doesn't do it justice, you know. And I mean, it was, it's an atrocity. But people on the right have been working for that single-mindedly for 50 years, and they did not give up, and they eventually won it. That doesn't mean that everything we want as progressives it is going to take 50 years. Hopefully it doesn't, but it does mean that you have to keep at it. And I'm actually going to steal the president's words here from the Selma speech. There is joy to be found in that struggle. A lot of this book is about the struggle to do good work, even with a good team around you. And that's why I teach now. I'm trying to, every year, pump new speechwriters out into the world. And I don't get to choose my students. They, they can be Republicans. They can be Democrats. They can be of any background. But I want them to care one way or the other one of the more gratifying things in my life probably behind my own daughter is watching my students go out and become speechwriters for governors and senators and presidents of the united states and now they're doing this and it makes me so happy that a new generation is kind of up to this task that they are more fired up than we were they also have to be because their issues are the issues are much more pressing for them than they were for us you know and by us i mean i'm twice as old as my students now i'm 42 they're 21. we knew about climate change when i was their age but it wasn't something that we knew was going to maybe make the planet inhospitable in our own lifetimes
1: no way we weren't doing anything about that
2: we didn't have to do active shooter drills in high school you know 9 11 hadn't happened yet these are things that My kids have gone through that I never had to, so there's more urgency there, and yet they are still willing to get involved and get engaged, which is really exciting. You know, authors should never read reviews. Of course we read every single review. You all do. And there was one today where the last line just made me so happy. Grace is also a rarity in presidential histories these days. It's an argument for public service. You know, and that's not why I wrote the book, but that's one of the things that I wanted to come out of the book, and it just made me really, really happy that I, I hope young people read this book and go, I wanna do that. You asked about a day in the White House. There are so few days where you have an unambiguous victory. You know, it's not like election night, you know, where it's just, boom, we won. The night we passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010 was one of those nights. And we were all out on the Truman Balcony of the White House afterwards, celebrating late at night on a Sunday. And the president said, you know, this is better than election night. You know, election night just gave us the chance to change something, and today you did. You know, clear-cut victories are few and far between in politics, but it's it's what you do every single day in between that makes them possible.
1: It's been such a privilege to work on this book for you, and it's just such a dream to to have an, an inside to this and to see... I don't know who you are and to realize that there is the change is possible that the cynical part of those of us kind of outside of politics you have to squash that because there's really no place for it this book kind of is is, is an inspiration to do all of those things so thank you thanks Angie Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Almayer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers, and Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. In two weeks, we'll be speaking with Laura Worrell about her debut novel, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. See you then.